The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. My name is Tommy. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad that if you're visiting with us today that you could join us uh, this weekend on Memorial Day weekend. Um, this weekend is always uh, a weekend that is it's so interesting to, to think about, to be able to look back and reflect on those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we could even have the freedom to be in this room, to be able to exercise the freedoms that we're afforded in this country. But the thing that it always brings back to my mind <clears throat> is that it is such a great picture of the gospel. You know, every single great story, I think, is a gospel story. And when we look at Memorial Day and the sacrificing of others on our behalf for our freedom, uh, I can't help but to point to the cross and the fact that Christ sacrificed on our behalf for our freedom in him. And so I'm thankful for today, and I'm thankful for what today stands for. Uh, now, today we are going to be moving into the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. We've been working through <clears throat> the book of John so far, and we are getting to this new chapter. Now, we're going to see a lot of interesting things begin to change in this chapter, and we're going to set up all of these changes today. We're going to see um, Jesus minister to some different people. We've seen him minister to Jews already. We've seen the wedding at Cana. We've seen um, Nicodemus coming at night. And we've seen those stories, but we're going to begin to see the expansion of the gospel now beyond that. We're going to see Jesus minister um, to the Samaritan woman at the well. We're going to see him minister in different ways to his own disciples. We're going to see many other Samaritans be ministered to by Christ. We're going to see a nobleman in his household. And as we move through the book of John, we're going to basically see who the world is. <clears throat> Remember in John chapter three, we found that for God so loved the world. And we talked about God's love extended to the world and the person of Christ. And now we're going to begin to see what that world looks like. We're going to see how different that world is. And we're going to find a commonality in all of these people in spite of their differences. And that is faith upon and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is going to set us up specifically for the story of the Samaritan woman. And we're going to be in this story for quite a few weeks. This isn't going to be um, one of those that you think, we're going to run through quite as quickly as you think, um, because today we're going to only begin to set up the history and the culture of this story. Now, for some of you, that sounds extremely exciting, history and culture. Um, but for me, it is. Uh, you, most of you guys know that that's what I do for my job is I teach history and culture. And so I couldn't be happier about where this is. But if we understand what this is going to mean for where all of the gospel of John is going and where the gospel itself is moving, then you're going to find today's piece to be incredibly important to understand the ministry of Christ moving forward. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless his time with us today. God, I thank you so much for you and your presence. I thank you so much that you promised to be here with us. And God, even though you're here already, we ask you to come. Lord, I ask that you remove me from out of the way and that your spirit speak and your spirit minister and your spirit even bring salvation in this room today. God, I ask for conviction in our hearts, though it's not always pleasant. I'm thankful for it because it shows you are still working on us. 
So God, I ask that you be with us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, John chapter 1 is a bit of a, uh, John chapter 4, verse 1 is going to be a bit of a continuation from what we have already seen going on in chapter 3. John chapter 4, verse 1 says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had learned that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Now, this is going to be a continued statement that we're going to continue on with in a bit. We're going to see what the result of this is. But if we remember back to chapter 3, the end part of that, if you were with us, you remember the story that a Jew had gone to one of John's disciples and said, Hey, Jesus, that guy, he's over there baptizing. As a matter of fact, John 3. 3, 25, and 26 recounts the story. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. So in chapter 3 and chapter 4, we see this gospel message isolated to these areas, but the message of what Jesus is doing is beginning to spread like wildfire. People are starting to talk about this guy that's uh, baptizing. They had been talking about John before, and now the message of Jesus is beginning to move around. Hey, there's this other guy. It's not John. As a matter of fact, there's even more going to him. And so this chapter four is showing us again how the message of what Jesus was doing is beginning to spread. And it made it through a Jewish man back to John's disciples, back to John. And now we know that it's also made it back to Jesus that the Pharisees know what he is doing. And so we understand that this baptism associated with Jesus is now starting to grow. Remember, um, in the last chapter, one of the disciples of John said, and they're all going down to Jesus. And so there's a multitude going down to Jesus to be baptized. Now, verse two is a very interesting little parenthetical. Verse two says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So verse 1 says that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing. And then John comes back to clarify this and says, even though it wasn't Jesus that was baptizing, it was actually his disciples. And so what we see in verse 1 is hearsay. Everybody in here knows that hearsay is always 100% true, right? (laughs) Yeah, not at all. Um, I found out this week, earlier this week, um, it was Tuesday of this week, I found out that I did something that I didn't know that I had done. I was sitting at the lunch table and I got a text from my athletic director. Hey, I just forwarded you an email. Can you tell me what's going on? And I was like, sure, let me check the email. And so I read the email and I found out that I had had a discussion with someone about something that I didn't know anything about and I didn't know this person either. And so we started making some phone calls and sending some emails and tracked it back down. And what ended up happening is that something occurred where someone said something to somebody else and somebody else overheard it and it got back around that it was the Cottage Hill golf coach. The Cottage Hill varsity golf coach said these things. 
but it turns out it was actually someone else. And so there was this big whole thing going on. And so we can see how people's idea of what is reality sometimes isn't always the truth. Like you hear something, you see something, you think you understand something, and then you go and decide to tell somebody else and oops, that was wrong. And so John 4.1 is easy to explain in light of 4.2. 4.1's hearsay. But there does appear to be a contradiction in Scripture. Look at this. John chapter 3, verse 22 says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained with them and was baptizing. This isn't hearsay anymore. This is John. This is the evangelist John, the guy that writes the book of John. And when you get to the end of, book, of the book of John, if you read the very last few verses, it's John saying, I can testify these things are true because I witnessed them. And we find out that he's kind of the ultimate witness in this book of witnesses. And so the question is, what do we do with this verse? Does this bother you, Tommy? Does this annoy you? And the answer is <clears throat> no, it doesn't bother me at all because there's actually not a contradiction here at all. Let me uh, tell you what a guy by the name of Leon Morris says about this. He says that it's an aside, the evangelist makes it clear that though baptism was practiced in Jesus' circle with his approval, he himself didn't perform the rite. That was left to the disciples. Now, what does all of this mean? Let me set up a scenario for you. How many of you have ever gone home shopping and you're looking around for houses, but you don't find this house, but you find this piece of land? And you're like, you know what? Why do I have to buy something that's already there? Why don't I instead have a new construction? Or maybe you had lived in a house for a while and you were saving up money and your dream was to build. How many of you in this room have ever built a house? How many of you? There's a few of you in here. Now do me a favor and keep your hand up if you actually built that house with your bare hand. If you poured the slab, if you floated it out, if you put all the plumbing in, um, you put up the stud walls, drywall, brick on the outside, did the roofing, all the cabin. So you all just lied to me? You didn't build a house? No. What happened is that you built the house. You authorized the building of the house. You were the one over it. You were the one giving approval to it. You were the one overseeing the building of the house. So you were completely truthful saying that you built a house. There was not a lie in you. Don't worry, I'm not calling you a liar. There was not a lie in you. When we look at the baptism of Jesus, we need to understand that that is how Jesus was baptizing. He was authorizing it. He was there. He was present. But the actual submerging occurred at the hands of the disciples. And so the question is not, did Jesus baptize or not? Scripture is pretty clear about that, that in this case, he did not. The question that I have to ask is why didn't Jesus baptize? See, that's the question I want to know. Because when we look at the ministry of John the Baptist, we find that John the Baptist was baptizing, but we don't hear about his disciples doing it, right? But yet we hear about Jesus' disciples baptizing with Jesus actually not. And so the question is why? We could discuss this for quite a while if we wanted to. Don't worry, I'm not. There's a lot to get to. But I think the basic simple answer of this is think about who is called to perform the work of the gospel. That's us. And so what is Jesus doing? Jesus is equipping. Jesus is passing this on. Jesus is giving hands and feet and a mouthpiece to the gospel. 
We, to this day, as representatives of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, that's who we're still supposed to be today. We're supposed to be the hands and the feet and the mouthpiece of Christ that we are to be doing the ministry of God out on this earth. And I know that we say all the time, especially those of us in ministry circles, we like to say my ministry, but let me be assured to you that it is never, ever our ministry. We are simply performing the ministry that God has called us to, and we're doing his work. So that is a very simple answer, but I also like another one. I like another answer. To me, it shows me that the work of salvation is complete in Christ. See, it's not Christ plus. What is baptism? Baptism is an outward expression of what's already been done in your life. It's, it's to show everyone. It's to follow the example of Christ, uh, to show others, to witness to others what has been done in your life. And if Christ is the author and perfecter of our baptism, there's no need for him to baptize in water because we already found out in the book of John that what does he baptize with instead? Spirit and fire. See, that's the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit and fire, that's his baptism. So there's no need for him to be the one baptizing. There's no need. Now, when we look at this passage, we've set up that Jesus learned that the Pharisees learned that he was baptizing. And we know that he wasn't actually the one baptizing. But look at verse 3. It says this, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So before the Jews, uh, the Jewish leaders, before the Pharisees could come and confront Jesus about what was doing, maybe ask questions, maybe come and, and, and make inquiries of him of what's going on, he chooses to leave and travel north. Now, his interactions with the Pharisees, with the religious elite, with some of the Jewish people in general, is going to be different as we move through the Gospels, right? Sometimes there's this discussion between them. We saw the discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus before, right? So it's not that Jesus is, you know, scared of these people. I mean, he's God. But instead, he understands and he is working out the purpose and plan of the Father. And at this moment, it's the purpose and plan for him to leave, for him to travel, for him to go north. Now, verse 4 is going to tell us something really interesting. And he had to pass through Samaria. This to me is one of the more interesting verses in this section. He had to pass, it, to pass through Samaria. Now, in order to understand this, we first need to find out where Jesus really is. And in order to do that, we're gonna have to go back to chapter three. Chapter three, verse 22 says this. After Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, so where is Jesus? The Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem. So where's John the Baptist? He's further north at Elam near Salem. Because water was plentiful there and the people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in the prison. So let's take a look at this map. We can see these two places on the map um, to let us know where John and Jesus are. Now, I had a typo up there. I have John the Baptist to the south and Jesus to the south. No, John the Baptist is in the north. Um, if you look at where that little red line crosses over um, from where you see Decapolis over into Samaria, 
right there at that path is where John the Baptist is baptizing. He's baptizing about eight miles west of the Jordan River, right close to Samaria. He's not quite in Samaria. It's still considered not Samaria, but he is baptizing there. Now, Jesus is not in Jerusalem which we can see on the map also. He's in the Judean countryside. So he is going to be over there closer to the Dead Sea, probably on the Jordan River also, just because of the interactions that we see. So John the Baptist and Jesus are not right next door to each other. Sometimes we read chapter three and we think that it's like, hey, look, there's Jesus and here's John the Baptist. Um, They're a decent journey away from each other, but they're hearing what's going on with each other. Now, when we look at our passage, it might seem like the only way to get from where Jesus was to where he wanted to go was to pass through Samaria. Because after all, our scripture says that he must, that he needed to, that he had to pass through there. But that's not the case because we're going to look at this other map and we're going to see that there were three routes to get from south to north. There was an eastern route that was along the east side of the Jordan River. You crossed the Jordan, went north, crossed back across. And this is where Jesus was. He was already there on the Jordan River. This was the path that would make the most sense. There was a central route that went straight through the middle of Samaria. And then there was a western route that went along the Mediterranean Sea. And so we can see that Jesus did not have to pass through Samaria. He had three options. So that's not what the Bible's talking about here. He had to pass through. No, he didn't. There were three options. Well, maybe instead the Bible is telling us that it's the fastest way. Maybe that's what it means by he had to pass through Samaria. Now, it's true that if you're in Jerusalem, going straight through the middle is your best route. Going straight up to the north is your best way. But we know that he was not in Jerusalem, right? He was already over to the east, And so this eastern path would have still been the one that made the most sense. It would have been the fastest. So we know that when the Bible says he had to pass through Samaria, it's not talking about it being the fastest at this point either. Well, maybe when the Bible says he had to pass through Samaria, maybe it was just really pretty there. And he just wanted to walk through and enjoy the walk and meet the people and say, how are things going? And he just had to. It's kind of like if you go to Orlando, you have to go to Disney World. And so maybe that's what's being said here. Maybe he had to go through um, because of the beauty of it. Well, that's not true either. The reason why is because there was a tremendous amount of animosity between the Jews and the Sumerians, to, to, to put it lightly. Now, you may have heard that Orthodox Jews would never pass through Samaria, but that's not actually true. Um, we have historic accounts that they did, but it was almost always under extreme circumstances. Maybe they were in Jerusalem and needed the most expedited route to get north, but they would avoid this at all costs. They hated going through Samaria because they hated the Sumerians. An Orthodox Jew would do just about everything that they could to avoid Samaria. As a matter of fact, we have records that they would pray, that Jewish leaders would pray things like this. Thank God I'm not a woman and thank God I'm not a Samaritan. 
Talk about a whole new level of animosity. I mean, like this is, this is taking it to 10. Thank God that I'm not one of those people. Thank God that I'm not like them. As a matter of fact, when we look at John 8:48, I think it says something fun. And this may be just my imagination getting away with me here. But this is an interaction between the Jews and Jesus. And Jesus has been saying things to them. And then the Jews decide they want to chime in. And this is what they decide to say. The Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? A Samaritan and demon-possessed. What this made me think of, I don't know how many of you have been on the playground with small kids, but someone does something to somebody else and that little kid's going to pop up and he's going to say the worst thing that he can think on his head. Stinky butt face! Like something like that. Have y'all experienced that? Like where the kid just says these words and it's this combination of the worst things that he could think of. And so I can picture the Jews at this point answering Jesus when he's questioned them and talked about all of these things. I can see, but aren't you a Samaritan that's demon-possessed? Think about that. Think about just the animosity that these words are laced with. And so what happened? Well, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. Jesus didn't have to go because of the, the expedited trip that he would need to take. Jesus had to go because of another way that we can translate this word. He was compelled to go, that he must go. Now, why must he go? That's the question. Now, let's dig into a little bit of why the Jews and Samaritans did not get along at all. Because I think that's very important to this story is what's the source of the animosity that we see? Well, what we see is that the Assyrians in 722 BC, they end up uh, invading the Northern Kingdom, essentially. They're displacing the Jews, but not all of them. They displaced many of them. But what the Assyrians did also is that they brought in other people that they had conquered into the land. Now, as a history guy, I understand what's happening here, and I understand what the Assyrians are doing. What they're doing is they're destroying national pride. They're destroying a strong sense of nationality, because if you can oppress people, if you can keep people divided for a little while, it's so much easier to overtake them. Now, if this were in my, one of my U.S. history classes or something like that, we would go somewhere with that and talk about how, you know, together and unity, uh, a sense of togetherness is always the best way that we can go, but I'm not going to go there right now. But what the Assyrians did is they brought together these different people groups. And what happens when you bring together different people groups, something that in history and in geography we talk about all the time, cultural diffusion takes place. And what cultural diffusion is, is you take this culture and you take this culture and when they come together, pieces of this one matches with people, pieces of this one and you end up with this new thing. People intermarry and you now have children that aren't ethnically pure, for lack of better words. You have people that aren't culturally pure anymore because they're practicing things outside of what they were before they've adopted this custom from these people and these people and made this new culture. And so when the Jews were allowed to come back home, they came back and saw this new mixed breed, mixed race, unpure people and said, we want nothing to do with you. 
These people couldn't even trace their genealogy anymore. They didn't even know what tribe they were a part of. They, they didn't know any of this because they had been so diffused that they didn't have this identity anymore as being Jews. They even offered to help rebuild the temple and the Jews said no. They refused the help of these unclean, mixed breed, terrible people. And so what happened instead? The Samaritans go and build their own temple. They go and build their own place of worship and they build it on Mount Gerizim. The Jews in 128 BC end up destroying this temple on Mount Gerizim because it's, it's not where God is supposed to be worshiped. And this sets up a story that we're gonna talk about later. You guys may remember if you've read ahead, but in John 4:20, the lady responds to Jesus and says this, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And so that bit of history is going to bring us clarity into what's going on there, how there's these two places of worship that's proper. And so there are so many reasons that people had this hatred toward each other. And there's so many reasons that Jesus was compelled to pass through. See, what Jesus does is he takes these cultural norms and just flips them upside down. Nobody else would have done that. Nobody else would have doubled back. It's like if you were at our Fairhope campus of Mars Hill and we walk out of church and we look over at our friends and say, hey, do you guys want to go to Lambert's for lunch? And everybody says, sure. Well, we finish eating and then someone else walks in. What happened? Well, we took the interstate. No, you had to go all the way around. And so what Jesus did didn't make sense. He went back west before he went north. Why? Because he was compelled to. And why was he compelled to? Well, because there was a lady at a well that really needed to meet him. There was a group of people that were Samaritans that really needed to meet him. There was an official that really needed to meet him. And so he is compelled to. And so when we see he had to travel through Samaria, we actually mean he had to. He was compelled. He must so we've talked about three reasons that this should be translated this way, had to, compelled to, and we're going to talk about a fourth. So the first three that we talked about is there were three routes that Jesus could have chosen rather than just one. So we know that had to doesn't mean that there was only one way to go. Also, one of those routes was in close proximity to Jesus' starting location in the Judean wilderness. Remember, he was pretty much already on one of the routes. So why would he pick another one? He had to, well, he was compelled to. The third, Jews often avoided the direct route through Samaria for the route um, that was closest to Jesus's location. So he was already on the preferred route. He was already in the preferred place. This fourth one I love, because we're gonna get it in the next uh, couple of verses here. The location of Sakaar. And Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman had significant religious implications for both the Jew and the Samaritan and set the stage for an important teaching by Jesus. Guys, this is really good. Hang in there. I promise this is going to make so much sense as we move forward what Jesus is trying to do. If you can hang in there with me for just a few more minutes. So we look at our passage, chapter 4, um, and we get down to verse 5, and it says, So he came to a, sound, a town of Samaria called Sakar, 
near, a, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So where are they? They're, we're at this place. We're at Jacob's well, which we don't really know anything about from the Old Testament, but we do know about the place. We do know about the place that they're talking about here. It says that this was a piece of land called Sakar uh, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Now we go back and we look in Genesis um, chapter 32 and 33, and we see this story. So after Jacob's name had been changed, the question loomed, would Jacob return back home? Would he go and fulfill this plan that God had? And we find out in Genesis 33, 18, that after he gets back reunited with his brother Esau, um, that he does, and he travels back home. He bought a piece of land, and he named it the God of Israel. Now listen, this is huge. This was not only significant point of the life of, um, sorry, this was not only a significant point in the life of Jacob, but it also marked a significant turning point in the life of the nation of Israel. Why is that? What's so significant about this? Guys, look, this field that was here, it was given to Jacob, right? It, it was given he inhabits this land and what happens on this land when we go back and read this account, this is where he begins to have his children. What are the children of Jacob eventually going to be? The 12 tribes. See, this is the origin. This is the place where we see God's chosen people come from. This is the place where we see this idea, this message of what God is going to do through redemption. This is where we begin to see it laid out. This is where we see the birth of the nation of Israel through the sons of Jacob's that are, Jacob that is going to be the 12 tribes that their purpose is to point to the glory of God, that their purpose is to make the name of the Lord famous, that their purpose is to be a blessing to all other people. Watch this. Where does God choose to encounter this mixed breed, sinful woman? The place where it all started to begin with and God is now going to extend this message and say, but see, it was never about just Israel all along. It was about who? John chapter three, for God so loved the world. It was about all of us. I'm thankful for this. I'm so thankful that as a Gentile, I'm so thankful that as a messed up sinful person, I'm so thankful that I have been called into this fold. I'm so thankful that I have been adopted into this story. Remember, we look back at the story of Nicodemus 
And, and, and we see Nicodemus thinking that he's already part of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, look, uh, that's, not, that's not true. That's not going to happen, that you are not part of the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it's not about your ethnic birth. It is about being born again. And Jesus talks to him about this, that it's not about how you were born. It's about who you are reborn into. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. And Jesus continues talking about it. And I feel that the way that the spirit led John to lay out the book is that he's saying, hey, this is what I mean. Look at who Jesus encountered, a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan woman, and one that's not even morally pure by Samaritan standards. Think about this. She was even ostracized by the Samaritans. The Jewish elite would have been so offended by this encounter. You mean Jesus went into Samaria? You mean Jesus spoke with a woman? You mean that woman was, uh, had been married multiple times? You mean that woman was with a man right now that's not even her husband? Uh, how offensive. They would have been so offended by what Jesus did here. But instead, Jesus is pointing to the fact of, of who the gospel is extended to. Absolutely all of us. Now, this sixth hour reference means that it's noon and we're going to talk about that some uh, next week about how, you know, nobody would have been there and how she is avoiding people because of her reputation. And we're going to start drawing this contrast, but I want to kind of bring it up already because Nicodemus came in the middle of the night. Why? Because he had a lot to lose. He came under the cover of the night to protect his reputation um, to, because he was important. But yet this woman comes in the middle of the day. Why? Nobody was there. She'd been ostracized. She had nothing probably left to lose. And, and there's a picture there of how your situation does not dictate the work of God in your life, that the work of God is by him and for his glory and by his purpose. And he does that in us. Now, we've talked about the history of this. We've talked about how the land is significant. Um, we've talked about the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. We've talked about this place, this geographic setting. But the question is, what can we take from this today? What, is this just a good history lesson? What can we take from this today? And the answer is an awful lot. The answer is a lot. And it starts with this comparing and contrast, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. I love this. It doesn't matter how good you are. You need Christ. It doesn't matter how bad you are. You need Christ. These are two people in completely different settings. One was a male, one was a female. And at that time, that made a, a vast difference. One of them was ethically, according to ethics, a good, clean, pure person. And the other one was ostracized by our community, but yet Christ comes and impacts both lives. Yet Christ comes and brings salvation, brings the message of him to these people. Now, when we also look at this story as a whole, when we look at, at this whole thing, I think our greatest application is going to come in the form of a question. A couple of questions, actually. This gets a little uncomfortable, but I think that it's always good for us to address things that are uncomfortable. 
Question one is for those of you who are Christ followers, those of you who profess Jesus as Lord, my question to you is, do you have prejudices? Do you have prejudices? See, Jesus broke down all of these barriers, but in your life, do you have people that you're unwilling to serve? You have people that you're unwilling to share with. Are you creating social barriers in your life where the people around you simply look, act, and talk like you? They share the same income level as you. They have the same interest as you. And these are the only people who you can possibly connect with. And we shun out everyone else. Do you have prejudices in your life? Or there are people who you would look at and in church call them your brother or sister, but yet never want them to be a part of your family? Are there people that you look at and say, they speak a different language from me? They're, they're different from me and therefore I, I can't be a part of that. Do you look, let's get real uncomfortable here. You look at people that are obviously from a different country than you and look at them and automatically assume that they're here illegally and you have thoughts in your head that are not right about them. Better question, do you look at anyone differently than you should? And let me tell you how you should, that we're all made in the Imago Dei. We're all made in the image of God. Hey, look, there's another image bearer of God. Hey, look, there's another image bearer of God. Hey, look, there's another image bearer of God. That's how we must view each other. It doesn't matter your differences because I can promise you this. In all of my experiences, I have found that if you really want to sit down and get to know someone, you're going to find out that you're way more similar than different. It doesn't matter where that person's from doesn't matter anything. We all have struggles. We all have pains. We all have needs. We all have desires. Every single one of us, and that's not dictated by the amount of pigment in your skin. We all have these needs, and we all need to follow the example of Christ and burst through these barriers that are created around us, that the world creates around us. And we need to do the ministry of Jesus, be his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece. We need to be that. Um, Mark shared a story in pastor's community uh, about a subdivision. Um, and uh, this subdivision is, um, is, well, I won't tell you where because I don't want him to be mad at me. Um, but there's a subdivision that actually blocked off a road. They literally closed the road. They put up a barrier in the, in the road. Do you want to know why? Because that road allowed you direct access to another subdivision that wasn't as affluent that they were lower income and they didn't want them driving through their neighborhood. So they literally built a wall to keep these people out of their subdivision that were different than them. And we all find that incredibly offensive. Like that bothers us. But here's my question. What walls do you build every single day to keep people that aren't like you out of your life? We must address this issue. So question one, do you have any prejudices in your life? Question two, for those of you who are not Christ followers, do you feel like you're so bad that Christ can't do anything for you? 
See, that, that's a lie. That's a lie. And I think that we see that as this is unfolded in the book of John, that we see immediately that we move from this Jewish religious leader man who needs Jesus to what would have been considered the lowest of low. Find me a person lower, a woman that is, that's a Samaritan, that's a half-breed, and that is living with somebody that's not her husband, and yet Jesus reaches out to her. There is nothing that you have done that can separate you from the ability to be saved by Christ. There is nothing you have done. You may say, but you don't know my background. You don't know my past. Well, then you don't know my God because my God is completely capable. The blood of Jesus was complete. It was able, it is able to cover any sin. It is enough. There is nothing that you have done that Christ can't cover. We need to remember that and we need to understand that as we work through this book. So as we move through John, pay attention to these people. Pay attention. They're there for a reason. I, I love this also because when we look at this, we can see a very intentional path laid out, I think. Watch this. In the book of John already, we saw that in John chapter 2, verse 13, that the gospel had moved from Galilee to Jerusalem, or basically that Jesus is traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then in 322 to the Judean wilderness, and now in verse 4, verses 3 and 4 to Samaria. That should throw up something in your head. That should remind you of Acts 1.8, right? It says that the gospel will be spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. What do we get from this? The gospel is not limited. It's not limited. National barriers don't exist with the gospel. Color barriers don't exist by the gospel. Language barriers don't exist by the gospel. Your sin that you think is too big for the gospel does not exist by the gospel. There's no barrier that cannot be overcome by the completed work of Christ. John 4, 1 through 6 says this. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, as, as we worked through this, um, let us understand that your word is meant to be impactful, that it is all God-breathed, that it is good for correction, that it is good for moving us to holiness. And so God, today, as we just set up the historic context of what we're gonna be looking at, God, I pray that you speak to our hearts. 
Lord, that you move in us in places that we have um, ideas that separate us from other people. God, where we have prejudices. God, where we have things in our life that make us unwilling or unable to accept people different from us as our brothers and sisters and as our family members. God, I ask that you remove those. And God, as we're studying this, Lord, I ask your blessing on our international ministry that we have here with our international church that's going on and and meeting here and beginning to get rolling. God, I pray that you help us as the people of Mars Hill follow your example to tear down any barriers that could be between us and internationals or between us and people from other places, God, that we look at everyone and say that the gospel is needed everywhere and God, help us share it. Lord, I pray um, your blessings on those in this room and your spirit on those that don't know you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit speak to them and convict them and let them understand that yes, they're messed up people, but so is absolutely everyone that has ever come to Christ. Lord, help them through your spirit, guide them through your spirit to confess their sins to you. Lord, draw them to you. Lord, save them by your grace. Lord, give them the faith to respond. Lord, I ask that as we move through this week, that you help us look to those around us to minister to, that we don't see anyone as different than who we were outside of you, and that we understand that the gospel is desperately, desperately needed. God, I thank you for being with us in Jesus' name. Amen. If any of you would like to pray with anyone or or like to talk with anyone over by our prayer banner um, in the corner, um, we'll have some people there um, that can pray with you and speak with you.